I'd like to bookend my sermon this morning with some words of the Indian poet Rabindranath Tagore. Let me begin with these, with this short verse. When you live in the hearts of those you love, remember then you never die. When you live in the hearts of those you love, remember then you never die. Our bodies die, but still we live. As memory links us to our parents and grandparents who have gone before us, and all those we have loved, they come alive again in our hearts. We can see their faces, hear their voices, feel their embrace. They live again as we look around our homes and see their pictures, books they loved, chairs they sat in as we talked with them. As his teacher Maury said in Mitch Albom's Tuesdays with Maury, death ends a lifetime, but not a relationship. Some of you, like me, have fond, youthful memories of discovering Khalil Gibran's little classic, The Prophet. Anyone remember the first time you discovered that? Maybe I'm the only one. It was at Star Island when I was still in high school. In these closing words from the prophet's farewell to the people of Orphalese, you will hear a similar thought. His time with them has come to an end, he says. And yet forget not that I shall come back to you. It was but yesterday that we met in a dream. But now our sleep has fled and our dream is over and it is no longer dawn. The noontide is upon us and we must part. If in the twilight of memory we should meet once more, we shall speak together again, and you shall sing to me a deeper song. How often this is so. In the twilight of memory, our loved ones whose time on earth is ended come back to us, and we speak to each other again. And perhaps in my more mature years, I am now able to sing to them a deeper song in questions and thoughts I was not able to voice while they lived. Yet now for me they live again as I think of them, sometimes prompted by tokens of their lives, such as you've spoken of this morning. My oldest, Connie, now has my father's favorite chair, lovingly recovered for her, by my sister-in-law, who knew how she cherished it. I have a painting of my mother, which hung over her desk in our house. And I also treasure a little roll-top desk, now an antique, from the house where my mother grew up now more than a century ago. Coupled with our imagination, our memory can even bring alive those we never knew. We've been blessed to have inherited some lovely oil paintings in our house. They're landscapes done by Phyllis's great-grandfather, great-grandfather Hayes, a mining engineer who painted scenes from the Rocky Mountains he loved so much. We also have a copy of his autobiography, handwritten autobiography, illustrated with little oil paintings. Surrounded by all of these, we feel the presence of these ancestors around us, even though they died so long ago 
and perhaps we never knew them. But in a sense, we do. I knew my father's father, for whom I am named. You've heard me speak of him. And I have fond memories of summers spent at the New England farm where he and my grandmother retired. But I never knew any of my ancestors before their generation. I remember being excited when one of my aunts gave me an old scrapbook from my great, it would be my great-grandfather, also a country minister. And I opened it only to find page after page of pasted newspaper and magazine clippings. And I was so disappointed, it didn't occur to me, to realize that if I'd given some thought to what he thought worth preserving in that scrapbook, I might have learned something about him. His grave is too far away to visit now, out in the west where he fled in search of a place where he could find a cure for his tuberculosis, which took his life. My aunt, at least, tracked down the places where he had served in ministry in small towns in Maine. And yet, though Phyllis and I have spent many summers in Maine, I have never made the effort to follow that pilgrimage of hers. I did not know my other grandfather. Sadly, he has been erased from family memory. Having, as I have pieced together, been rejected by my grandmother's family and pushed out after they'd been married only a short time. I don't think even my mother ever knew him. She never talked of him, and her mother never remarried. This must have left for her an even greater void than it seems for me, as I now look back and wonder what part of him lives on in me. At least for those we knew, our ancestors live in us, not just in memory, but often in the flesh. We sometimes notice that in looking in the mirror. We may hear it in our voices. We may sense it in the thoughts behind our voices. How often I hear my father's voice in my more judgmental thoughts and feel chastened. Happily, I recognize my mother's as well. And I'm reminded that I am the child of both of them challenged to shape my life around the best of each. We seldom have the chance to know our earlier ancestors, and yet they too become a part of us through the way they have shaped our parents, not to mention our genes. And so it goes back into the mists of time. In tempering our judgments about our ancestors, it can help to remind ourselves that we cannot expect them to be perfect any more than we are. Like our parents, we struggle to shape a life for ourselves, starting with what we have been given and building on it. As we reflect on what life was like for them, it can be easier to find our way to both appreciation and forgiveness. This is part of what it can mean, I think, in the fifth commandment, to honor thy father and thy mother, to think well of them. As in this way we try to think well of our ancestors, we also will find it easier to claim their blessing on us, whether they ever spoke it or not. And easier to pass on our blessing to those who come after us. In the process, we will come to think better of ourselves, 
I hope, and live into the fullness of who we can be, of what we have to give. Opening our eyes to these blessings can offer a powerful counterbalance to our existential aloneness in life, of which we are often only too aware. For even as we are alone, we are also one with each other, yes, and also with all those who have ever lived and will come after us. We are one with life itself. We are linked by inheritance, of course, and we're also linked in the spirit of life in which we all are one. As we surround ourselves with reminders of those who have gone before us and nurture our love for those around us today, a fresh sense of connection with these loved ones, both in the flesh and in the spirit, may come alive within us. We can see their faces and hear their voices, even as we can speak to them, whether they're physically present or not. We can feel the warmth of their hands in ours, and we can feel the warmth of their embrace. Nurturing these connections, we're reminded that our stories do not stand alone. We are part of the larger story of our families, our culture, our religious traditions. If we will let them, these stories too come alive in our hearts. They add a new dimension to our own stories as we come to see ourselves in the perspective of many generations. And we know more deeply than ever that we are not alone. As this happens, we can experience what I like to think of as coming home to where we started, but now in this longer perspective. Perhaps this is part of what T.S. Eliot meant when he said that the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Let me share with you a story that illustrates this coming home experience. It's told by Rachel Remen, the physician-turned-counselor to those living with cancer. An only child, she was given the name Rachel. After her mother's mother, who had been known for her almost legendary kindness and compassion, chesed in Hebrew, usually translated loving-kindness. But until the time of this story, she had always been called by her middle name, Naomi. At the age of 85, as her heart began to fail, her mother underwent major cardiac surgery. In intensive care afterwards, she was disoriented and sometimes hallucinated. On one visit, Rachel felt she had to ask if her mother knew who she was, and her mother responded with warmth, saying, You are my beloved daughter, Rachel. You are my beloved child. But then, as Remen started to sit down in an empty chair by the bed, her mother said, don't sit there. Rachel is sitting there. It was quite obvious, Remen writes, that she saw quite clearly something I could not see. Confused, Remen brought in another chair and sat down. Then her mother, for the first time, addressed her not as Naomi, but as Rachel. As she turned to the empty chair, and she said, Rachel, this is Rachel. Then Remen continues, my mother began to tell her mother, Rachel, about my childhood and 
her pride in the person I had become. Her experience of Rachel's presence was so convincing that I found myself wondering why I could not see it. It was more than a little unnerving and very moving. And then Remen continued, she explained to her mother why she had her mother explained to her mother why she had given me her name. It was about her hope for my kindness of heart. She apologized for my father, who had insisted on calling me Naomi, a name which came from his side of the family. Tired, her mother laid back on the pillow. Closing her eyes, she said, I'm so glad you were both here now. I'm so glad you were both here now. One of you will take me home. She went back to sleep, and as Remen writes, it was my grandmother who took her home. It was at this point that Remen began asking people to call her Rachel. For up to then, though her intellect and determination and science had brought her much professional success, she says, I had not succeeded through loving kindness. The quality in her grandmother, which her mother hoped that naming her for her grandmother might bring out in little Rachel. Only now, in her 50s, did this dream of her mother's begin to come alive and her decision to leave the practice of medicine at which she had been so successful to become a counselor to those living with cancer. She had come home to who she was. I wonder whether in this way it may have felt like coming home for some of you when you first came to this little chapel in the country, built by former slaves seeking a place where they could be themselves in a hostile world. Maybe for you, a coming home to a place where you could bring all of yourself to your religious journey. I have to say that for me, this little chapel always awakens a feeling of following in the footsteps of my grandfather, the country minister, and the feeling that I'm becoming the person I was meant to be. I hope that for all of us, in some way, our experience together in this place helps us to come home to who we are, who we long to be, and in the process to feel the blessing of those who have gone before us, both our loved ones still with us in spirit and our religious ancestors, still such a living presence in our faith tradition. As we close, let me return to Tagore, who brings alive the embrace of our parents' love even if only for some of us the love we wish we'd felt. In another poem writing in the voice of a mother to her daughter, he offered these words. This song of mine will wind its music around you. Will wind its music around you like the fond arms of love. This song of mine will touch your forehead like a kiss of blessing. When you are alone, it will sit by your side and whisper in your ear. When you are in the crowd, it will fence you in with aloofness. 
My song will be like a pair of wings to your dreams. It will transport your heart to the verge of the unknown. It will be like a faithful star overhead when dark night is over your road. My song will sit in the pupils of your eyes and will carry your sight into the heart of things. And when my voice is silent in death, my song will speak in your living heart. May the voices and the songs of those who have loved us still echo in our minds and hearts and bless us as we remember them. And may we, in our turn, bless those around us, and especially the children, that we, like them, may never die. May it be so.